We're going to begin our study of theology talking about kind of some methodology and some basic concepts and rules that are going to govern our study of theology. <clears throat> now, any academic, intellectual, or spiritual pursuit that we have, we are going to have some rules and guidelines that we want to follow. And this is true of just about every situation we have in life. There's always some rules and guidelines and methods that we follow. Even, you know, in our church services on Sunday, we have methods of doing things. We're not Methodists, but we have methods of doing things. You know, we begin with an opening song that's exciting to kind of bring everyone in and get everyone excited about what's going on. And then we have some prayer and announcements, which Alfonso or somebody does, and it, you know, just kind of centers everyone. And then we have some worship time, some praise time, and then a sermon. And then we have prayer time after that and a quiet worship song to kind of bring the Holy Spirit in. So that's a method of doing things, right? Lots of churches have different methods. And that helps us to stay focused, to stay on track. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. We're a lot more loose than a lot of other churches that have liturgies and you know, stand up, sit down, and that's not wrong. That's just a different way of doing things. Um, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about church history. We've been talking about heresies. We've been talking about worldviews. All these things are out of bounds, the heresies and worldviews, that is. And so those are guidelines, kind of like guardrails when we go bowling, to help us to stay out of the gutter. It's going to help us stay true to the Word of God. So... Before we get into some actual theology, we're going to talk about the methodology of how we study it. There's a kind of a chain or steps. <clears throat> and this is an important thing. Methodology is important. There's several steps, and these keep us grounded. So you have a handout there that we're going to go through. We're going to walk through these kind of steps of theology. <clears throat> and... It's important to understand that, one, we do this every time we study the Bible. I'm just kind of giving you a breakdown of these steps. And there are different intellectual and academic disciplines within this. So I took classes on these different topics. And you can get degrees just in these different topics, as you'll, as you'll see. So um, the first one that we're going to talk about is exegetical theology. This is the first step. So the first thing, well, it's not the first step. The first step is we have our text. We have the Bible itself. This is the Word of God. And exegetical theology is the first kind of examination of the Scriptures. We accomplish this by using this exegetical theology exegetical just is kind of a word that means examining and understanding. This is where we as the readers are looking at the text of Scripture with a magnifying glass. Our goal is to understand the original meaning of the passages of Scripture in its original context and it's find its true meaning. So we're going to look at the passage. We're going to look at the history surrounding it. We're going to look at the author. We're going to look at the whole book as a part of the passage, not just an isolated passage, because that can get us in a lot of trouble. The biggest example of that is Romans 
Well, it's the example I like to use. It's probably not the biggest example. There's lots of big examples. But, um, for instance, Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All right, so that's one of the famous passages that's taken out of context, especially when we look at the entire context of this verse right before it, we have Paul talking about suffering in the present time not being anything compared to the deliverance and the resurrection that's going to come. So when we, talk, when we frame this passage of Scripture with the idea that, for going back in Romans, Romans 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to, com- be, to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, so this is something, so, so that all things work together for good, that's not necessarily talking about our present situation, that's talking about the future glory that is to come, because we are eternal beings, and there's a lot going on there. So we have to look at the whole context of Scripture in order to get a proper understanding, exegetical theology, exegetical understanding of these passages, and that's one of many. That one's just an easy one to pick apart really quickly. A lot of people use that scripture, obviously, to talk about everything from their car dying to losing a child. And it's like, well, that's not exactly what's going on there. We need to understand it in the full context. So that's where having an exegetical, a proper exegetical theology comes in handy. Now, It's important to understand here, there's an element of personal application, obviously, because there's personal application throughout all of Scripture. This isn't necessarily the goal of this practice, of this discipline. The goal here is just to understand the Scripture as it is. What can be gleaned from the Scripture on its own terms? That can also mean that we're not pulling in other things to the passage. So one good example of this is talking about um, talking about let's let's think about Isaiah. Isaiah is a fantastic messianic and prophetic book of the Bible. There's a whole lot in Isaiah about the Messiah that's coming in Isaiah. Some of the most beautiful pieces of literature about the person who we later know as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is written in Isaiah. However, we have to be very careful as New Testament Christians, as Christians who are after the New Testament has been written, to not read Isaiah and say, oh, that's Jesus, oh, that's Jesus, oh, that's Jesus, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's what Jesus did in Matthew such and such. Because that's not what Isaiah is doing there. Isaiah is writing to a specific group of people, and we need to understand that. Especially because many of the passages in Isaiah are not just about Jesus. They're also about men like Zerubbabel and others, like Ezra and Nehemiah, because it is primarily dealing with the return of Israel to the land of Israel. So the return of the people to the land of Israel. So we have to be really careful to not pull different things into the passages when we're doing 
this exegetical theology when we're seeking to understand the Scripture as it is on its own. The same thing with the Gospels. When we read Mark, we want to stay in Mark. When we read Matthew, we want to stay in Matthew. We can compare later, but for the first thing, this exegesis we're going to do, we want to stay there. Does that make sense? Does that understand? Yeah, so we just got to be careful to not uh, apply too many outside things because that can really change the meaning of a passage, especially when we look at something like Isaiah. Now, alternatively, we can do the opposite, especially going Old Testament to New Testament. For instance, in Matthew, keeping with the Isaiah-Matthew idea, in Matthew, there is a lot of the book of Matthew that is actually just parts of Isaiah that are copied or quoted. I took a whole class in college, the New Testament's use of the old. There's so much of the New Testament, it's just them quoting the Old Testament. So, in that case, it would be very appropriate in this process of exegetical theology to look at the passage in Matthew and say, oh, that's Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah and see what's going on in Isaiah there. So, that's very appropriate, but we don't want to do the opposite, if that makes sense. So, that's where this practice comes in into play. That's where this theology comes into play. This is where this discipline and the work comes in. And a lot of this stuff we can learn from just reading the scripture. Most of our Bibles will have, especially in the New Testament, good study Bibles will have like, oh, this is is a quotation from this verse in the Old Testament or something like that. So we have all the tools right at our hands. There's lots of great commentaries that can help us with this type of work, with this type of exegesis. So the main question that we ask when we practice exegetical theology is what does this text say or passage say and what did the author want his readers to hear? That's what we're after. We're not necessarily after how this applies to me. We're not after what does Paul think about this text. We're after what does the specific author want his readers, and by his readers, that's not just us. That's, like in the case of Romans, that's the Romans, the people Paul was writing his letter to. So what does Paul want his readers to hear? Which is an important question to ask. Because that helps inform our meaning. A good example of that is the church of Corinth. Corinth was going through very different things than Romans. And when we understand that, it gives a different or a new meaning for us in the text. If we apply what was going on in Corinth to the people in Rome or Ephesus, well, that doesn't really work, and that changes the meaning a lot. So we have to understand the audience and all those things. Authorial intent is very important when we talk about Scripture. Any questions about exegetical theology? This one is thing we do a lot of in the church, especially in typical Bible studies, you know, verse-by-verse Bible studies. This is what we're doing here. The next subject, or theological practice, is called biblical theology. Biblical theology. 
Biblical theology is primarily concerned with the overarching story of the Bible, like an unfolding scroll. So one complete story. Now, one important thing about biblical theology, it, it is the most, well, it's not systematic theology, but it is one step outside of what the Bible actually is. Because biblical theology is not quite as concerned with what a specific passage says as much as it's concerned with the whole story of God. So we're going to be exploring very large themes throughout the Bible. Obviously, some of the big ones are creation, resurrection. The two bigger ones are the messianic story, the story of redemption, So these big overarching stories, salvation, that go from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We're looking at how the whole Bible, or parts of the Bible, we can can focus it to, what does the New Testament have to say about this? What does the Old Testament have to say? Or particular books, like what does Genesis have to say about creation? What does Genesis have to say about redemption? And so on and so forth. We're going to look at big picture ideas that have to do with the story of God, more particularly than just specific instances like, oh, what what does the Bible say about uh, the omniscience of God? That's a different type. We're looking at the big picture of salvation, redemption, creation, etc. This is also where we think about the return of Christ, because it has to do with, you know, kind of the big story, overarching storyline. This one in kind of philosophical or other terms is kind of the meta story, so the overarching story of everything. The big question that biblical theology asks is what does, I have in your ex-Bible books, you can put anything in there, whether it's the whole Bible or like I said, Genesis, say about X big topic or Y big topic, and how does that relate to the big picture of that big topic? So, for instance, what does Isaiah say about the salvation of God's people, and how does that relate to how the whole Bible talks about the salvation of God's people? You can see how this would be a very valuable question to ask and a valuable part of our study. And we can do that with all parts of the Bible every book of the Bible. And indeed, it has There's whole studies and in, in disciplines and academics about this very thing, how we look at the entire big picture. Um, one really, uh, obviously, salvation, redemption, another big one is mission, the concept of mission throughout the whole Bible. These are all big topics And like I said, we can put any parameter on that. Old Testament, New Testament, whole Bible, particular books, chunks of the books, authors, etc. Now I I know where you're at. (laughs) Well, your your sheet didn't have the first couple of testaments all of the uh, exegetical theology. It doesn't? No. Whoops. (laughs) My bad. <laughs> Sorry, okay. I, I'll have to to edit that sheet. I'll I'll reprim. 
Yeah, what's yeah. going on? <laughs> no, it's, it's my fault. That's okay. Don't even need that. Jordan's in third grade, and she can re- she reads it. <laughs> oh, that's no, that's fine. Thank you. No, thank you, because I, especially because I sent that to a couple people already. I'm like, oh, I need to resend this, re- resend it. So I apologize, anyone who's listening on the podcast. If you have my notes, I left out a whole chunk of it. I see why. Um, yeah, it's. Anyways, systematic theology. Systematic theology is, it's my favorite one. Systematic theology is like a big filing cabinet or library. Anyone who knows me knows I like big libraries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Lots and lots of books. So it's like a big filing cabinet of ideas. When we practice systematic theology, we're organizing and filing the ideas about a given topic. So this is a method of filing ideas. This has been established by a lot of intellectuals, academics. This isn't something new. Like I don't, we don't come up with our new our own categories individually. Um, I mean, we can, but that typically isn't super helpful for us. And traditionally, this covers the whole Bible. Um, we don't just look at systematic theology in Genesis, for instance. That's not super helpful because Genesis leaves out a lot of things about all these different topics, as we'll see when we look at these topics. <clears throat> so the main topics, traditionally there are eight that we study. So in, this is like the definitive textbook, Grudem's Systematic Theology. There's a new edition that... It's not easy to read, but it's worth getting if you want. He goes over these main eight, and this is traditionally what it's been for, I'd say, the last 200 years. The first one is bibliology. It's quite simply the study of the Bible. And we've already been doing a little bit of this, studying how the Bible came about, the theology of the Bible, how it was formed, how... We have viewed the Bible, um, what the Bible says about the Bible, which is a thing, and it's very important to understand. And when we talked a couple weeks ago about, you know, the the different translations and such and and canon, then we, we discussed some of those, like some of the passages about how the Bible came to be. Um, the characteristics of Scripture, Scripture being inerrant, all those things we go over when we talk about bibliology, the study of the Bible, how necessary it is, sufficient it is, all those wonderful topics. Um, the next is theology proper, or the theology of God, and this could be really defined as um, not specifically the study of Father God, but this is more an overarching picture, and then it kind of funnels down into Father God. And this, we go over things like the character of God, his attributes, how can we know him, how the Trinity works is all wrapped up in this, 
how he works with his people through miracles, um, his creation, prayer, providence. All those things are all wrapped up in the study of God. And this is where we're going to spend a lot of time over the next few weeks in theology proper, the study of God, studying his characteristics more, most specifically. That is theology proper, the study of God. The next is anthropology, and this is to, not to be confused with anthropology like you take in college or in high school. This is anthropology, the study of mankind, the doctrine of mankind, specifically how he relates to God and how Scripture presents mankind and how Scripture presents humanity. So we are not interested in how you know, some ancient tribe lived and existed. We're interested in how the Bible, in, in this study of anthropology, we're interested in how the Bible presents mankind. So this is going to go over things like the creation of man, man and their gender, male and female, the nature of man with their soul and with their spirit, which these are things that we do all the time in church. This isn't like new stuff. Sin and how sin relates to man. And the... Um, we just didn't know that was what it's called. Huh? We just don't know that's what it's called. Exactly. And that's... I'm that's, giving you categories so you can file stuff away in, in your brain, in your library of your mind. Sin, what's sin, and then the covenants between man and God are the main topics that we go over in anthropology. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 I just addressed that. <laughs> I said this is not the study of that. This is specifically how the Bible presents mankind, not how because when you study anthropology in school, you're going to look at like. You'll, you'll, okay, how did mankind develop in Western Africa? How did mankind's religion develop in India? Or something like that. How mankind has developed over the, you know, religion, sociologically, philosophically, all those ologies. You're going to learn that in anthropology. This is not that. This is the study how man is presented in Scripture. How, basically how God views mankind. Yeah. Yeah, you could call it the doctrine of man. Yep. Yes. It doesn't, it's not concerned with what the Bible thinks about man. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, all these subjects can be secularized and secular. Which happens. There's a big secular theology movement, which is strange, but true. Mm -hmm. um, the next one, which is very important, is Christology. This is a study of the person of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and this is specifically in relation to the person of Jesus Christ, not just Jesus himself, the man, but the 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 idea of the Messiah, the idea of, um, of that figure throughout the Bible, 
because that redemptive Messiah figure, who is Jesus Christ, is presented in all of the books of the Bible, so we can look at it not just the person of Jesus Christ, but Christ and how Jesus fulfills that, and all those different ideas. The fact that he's fully God, fully man, the reason why he had to die. We're going to go over all that in the doctrine of Jesus Christ or Christology. That very much is followed up with the study of salvation and justification, sanctification are all wrapped up in this. The doctrine of the application of redemption. So this is going to go over things like how we are saved, the gospel, and how we are called, common grace, um, which is related. What? Soteriology. 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 (laughs) Soteriology. Um, This is also going to go over big topics like election, which is whether you're a Calvinist or an Armenian, which that's another topic, but it's in this doctrine of redemption, justification, the actual legal processes that happen when we are saved is all going to be wrapped up in soteriology. And then adoption, how we become a part of God's family, and sanctification, how we grow as members of God's family. And then finally, talking about union with Christ and glorification baptism, all these different things, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life, um, and the regeneration of Christians. Very important doctrine. Um, The next big doctrine is pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And all these are just like the Greek or Latin words for them with ology on the end, the study of. Like they're not... Yeah, bibliology is literally study of the Bible. You know, theology, theo is God, and logi, study of, logos. Pneumatology, study of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma is the Greek word for Holy Spirit or spirit. And this is, again, similar topics to redemption and Christology. We're talking about how he regenerates us, how he empowers us, how he moves us, what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in our life, and the role of the Holy Spirit within the Christian's life, and also what he does, the person, his attributes, and so on. <clears throat> the next is ecclesiology, which is the study and doctrine of the church. Very important talking about how the church works. This is something important because this is where we talk about things like baptism, Things like what the church looks like versus what it doesn't look like. Worship in the church. The gifts of the Spirit are going to be included in this subject. How the church operates, how the church grows. The power of the church, how the church should be governed. All those ideas are going to be wrapped up in the doctrine of the church. And then the last is eschatology the doctrine of end times or the future, the study of end times. And this is specifically going to be targeting the return of Christ, the millennium, the final judgment, the eternal punishment, new heaven and new earth. So all the things that have yet to happen in Scripture are going to be covered in the study of eschatology. 
Now, obviously, these are not the only categories. Uh, these are just kind of the big ones that you can throw a lot in, but in, within them, there's subcategories that you can discuss and talk about, and you can subfile, as it were. <clears throat> like some other ones that you can study are Israelology, the study of Israel, angelology, the study of angels and demons, martiology, the study of sin. These are all really becoming, um, they're not becoming, they've always been popular and important. They're just a little bit more focused and refined. <clears throat> now, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, he asked if we were going to get more detail on all the ologies. Yes, that's the, that's, that's the goal of what we're doing. That's, that's my goal, at least. And I'm going to talk about that at, at the end. Like, what my goal is with, with, with going here is, yeah, we're going to... Yeah. Yes, yes, that, that is the goal, is to get some... Yeah, he asked if we're going to get some body on the kind of the outline of what we've been talking about. Yes, that's, that's the goal here. So the, the goal of being a systematic theologian is to understand, compile the information, gather it together, so we have a library that we can pull from as we study Scripture. This gives us a more complete and holistic view on these topics. Um, the important thing in systematic theology is this is mostly a synthesis of ideas is what we do in systematic theology. So, for instance, um, and I have the Isaiah example there, you can see. But we can bring all different ideas from all different texts into cohesive, synthetic ideas. By synthetic, for instance, the Trinity the Trinity is not a word that's found in the Bible at all. You can't find the word Trinity anywhere. But it is a topic that is clearly important and core to our belief system. It's in all the creeds. It's a part of what we've believed for 2,000 years. But the word Trinity is not in the Bible. What is Trinity then? Trinity is a synthesis of all the ideas of God we have found. Men have synthetically pulled them together to form that idea. That's how all these are. For instance, you know, when looking here, there's, there isn't a, a term that says, oh, here's the millennium. Here's what you need to know about the millennium in Scripture. No, we have to synthetically pull them together, analyze, synthesize, and come out with a theology or an idea. And that's just fine. That's important. That's what we need to do. Most of our topics and subjects, that's how we come to know them. <clears throat> the main question of systematic theology is how can we organize the truths of the Bible in a way that helps us understand those truths better? And sorry for the typo, I have the instead of that. In a way that helps us understand those truths better. So that's the goal here, to help us understand the truths of the Bible better. 
truths of God, etc. It's another one. All the characteristics of God, outside of a couple, like doesn't come out and say, oh, God's omniscient. No, we came up with that word to describe God. Omnipresent, all those things. Those are synthetic ideas about God. <clears throat> That's systematic theology. It's filing the ideas and truths of Scripture into usable information and truths. Next idea we have is historical theology. How have others viewed the Bible? This is the practice of looking at how the people of God, and I specifically use the word people of God here because it's not just um, stuck on the church. So it's not just the church. It's not just how church historians have viewed the Bible but how Old Testament historians have viewed the Bible, how Old Testament writers viewed the Bible, how Old Testament believers did. And um, so it's not just, just to the church. It's, it's to everyone that is contained within the people of God. So <clears throat> in the Old Testament, the Jewish people and the people of Israel. This is important because we are not isolated or alone in our faith. We are not on an island this is what we've talked about a lot. We're going to keep hammering it home. We are a community of believers. We are not isolated individuals who believe in God that we could get to um, be on our own or anything like that. We are together. We also believe that the Holy Spirit resides in all believers. If the same Holy Spirit resides in you and me and John Calvin, and John Wesley, and Athanasius, and et cetera, et cetera, and all these believers, well, it's important then to understand what they believed about, what they understood about Bible, and their, they understood about the theology of, you know, any given topic. Because the Holy Spirit resided in them, He resides in us, we have something to talk about, right? We can learn from them. The Holy Spirit resides in all believers, past, present, and future. If we believe that, if those things are true, then they're just as important now as they are, or just as important as they were in the past, uh, they're important now. And we can affirm this just by reading our scripture. It's applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. The messages of Jesus Christ and the New Testament. <clears throat> And this has an impact on all the levels of our study, pastoral, academic, personal edification. So this historical theology is going to inform all the other disciplines of Scripture. We're going to look at what they believed. And we are going to, as we study systematic theology, we'll look at how Calvin and Augustine and all these different men and teachers and believers have believed about and what they learned and taught about theology and about God. How, the main question of historical theology is how have the people of God throughout history understood the given topic or the given passage? Anyone, any pastor who relies purely on his own understanding of Scripture and doesn't look to the past is setting themselves up for disaster, right? We should always never be irritated by your pastor for quoting somebody from the past, somebody old, somebody dead. That's good. That's not a bad thing. 
We can learn a lot from them, and we should always be looking to them for guidance. <clears throat> That's historical theology. The last is pastoral theology. Neil Anderson calls it practical theology, but pastoral theology. Pastoral theology is all about application. This is the final stage of the process of theology. And it's important to understand that this is always the end goal of theology, is to understand and bring theology, bring the teachings, the truth of Scripture, to our current age. Why is that the end goal? Because that's where God has placed us to act, to live, to work, etc., Pastoral theology can be particularly difficult because we're not just dealing with biblical texts that have hundreds and thousands of years in some cases of um, study, of, of you know, commentary, understanding, but we have to bring it to our current age with our current culture. So we have to learn the culture in order to bring this to fruition. <clears throat> and within our current culture, we don't just have, we have th hundreds, thousands of cultures within our current age. There's American 21st century culture, which within American 21st century culture, there's radically different things, even when you go from California to Texas to New York, you know, and then in California, there's, we have, you know, conservative culture, we have liberal culture, there's Mexican culture, there's all kinds of ideas and cultures that need to be considered when we do this practical theology. And so the role of the pastor to bring this to us can be very challenging, very difficult, obviously, because we have to learn and understand all these. That's why we talked about last week the worldviews, because that really helps us narrow in where we need to go with our teaching and with our study. But again, this is the main goal of theology, to bring about understanding to the people of our worlds. The main question that pastoral... Th yeah, you have a question, Kevin? Oh, as time goes on, cultures change. Cultures change almost yearly. Election to election. Or, you know, I was just talking with Stephen about some end time stuff and how five years ago I thought much differently about end time stuff than I did two years ago with COVID because it kind of twisted everything up. It was like, oh, it brought all new possibilities into play, right? And so... We have to be fluid, we have to be constantly engaging, um, and not fluid in our theology and understanding, but fluid in how we interpret the Bible to each other, right? We want to be firm in our foundation in our theology, but from that firm foundation, be able to move and be fluid with the people around us, if that makes sense. Well, that, and that makes a difference to even ages of people. Yeah, ages, big time. You talk to even, I mean, it's a lot more, it's a lot, lot more noticeable 
Over the last 30 years, the generation gaps, because of technology and other things like that, but you know, you have to talk to different generations differently now, and that's just how it is. People who are at the beginning of their life, people who aren't married, people who have children, they all get talked to in a different way, and that's okay. That's what the goal of theology is. That's what the goal of being a pastor is, to communicate effectively to any person that they come across, that we come across, because we are all called to be ministers to the people around us. <clears throat> I've heard it described, and I like the, the depiction of um, the Vegetas. Uh, if you're driving down the road, say I five, and it's a long straightaway, and in the distance you can see a mountain range. And as you get closer to that mountain range, it starts to take a different shape and form and size, and so you can make an even more clarity. Yeah. So he's, he's yeah. So he's talking about how when you drive down a highway, and yeah, one of the best examples when you're driving down up five and you see the grapevine and you know when you're like 100 miles away the grapevine looks really small and then it looks really big and then you kind of go around the grapevine and go and so you have to constantly are adapting to what it looks like what it changes what the vision of it and you have to adapt your theology not your theology you have to adapt your message the way you convey your theology to the changing landscape so the main question of pastoral theology, and it's called pastoral theology, it's not just for pastors, but it's the application side. So that's why we call it pastoral theology. How does this teaching or truth apply to me, the people of God, and the world today? So me, the people of God, so how does it apply to me? How does it apply to the church? And how does it apply to the world, the whole world? All important questions that need to be answered when we do pastoral theology. And in order to do this pastoral theology, we have to do all the other ones first. We have to have a proper understanding of systematic theology, etc. So these methods are really important for us to understand. We can't lose sight of this end goal application. And typically when we study the Bible, it's never just one of these Sometimes it is like if you're taking a course or like we're going to study some specific instances of it. But we must always be moving down a path. We must always have proper exegesis, proper understanding of the historical context, proper understanding of how it fits into God's big picture, the different words and ideas like the person of God, the character of God. Um, all of those things are going to impact our understanding and our theology. <clears throat> so many of us always be going down the path. So let's do a, just a little sample. And I'm just going to go over it real quick. But this is James 1, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion of the diaspora. Greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effects, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, if we're going to move through our steps of theology in this passage, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the historical context here. James is... What? You just read it really Oh. <laughs> Sorry. James, a servant of God. Read it slower. Okay. James, 
a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, I have five girls. It's just talking all the time, all the time. Never stops. <laughs> Six, eight with my two dogs. They're loud too. <laughs> yep. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, when we go over the concept of exegetical theology, just to point out a few things, and these, this is just an example. This isn't, we're not going to delve into the full depths of this passage because that would take a whole week. James, we have, is the author, as it says there. James is, see, can I write on this? Yes, I can. James is the brother of Jesus. That's what we assume. We know pretty confidently that he's the brother of Jesus. This is just an example of doing the steps of theology. He lists himself as a servant of God. That word servant in the Greek literally means bond servant. Bond servants were individuals who sold themselves into slavery to um, better themselves, better their lot in life. They would say, okay, I'm going to work for you for 10 years and you're going to pay me this much money or something like that. So he views himself as somebody who willingly is a servant of God. So that's an important little tidbit there of Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So he's talking here, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So we know that he is addressing this specifically to the people, the Israelite Christians who have been dispersed. These are people who have been flung out, that's what dispersion means, from Israel. So this isn't necessarily the Jewish Christians in Israel he's writing to, but the Jewish Christians throughout the Middle East at the time, the people who were dispersed, displaced. Well, James was dead before that, so no. <laughs> no, dispersion doesn't, the dispersion, he asked if this is after 70 AD, after the destruction of Israel, or destruction of the temple, no, the dispersion was not just a term that applied to those who left after the destruction of the temple, but the dispersion was for anyone outside of Israel. The real word there is diaspora, and the diaspora was a geographic area that kind of went from Greece all the way around Israel down to Egypt. So kind of the, the C-shaped shell around Israel. So all the churches within kind of the Middle East as what we... The diaspora? Uh, it's a Greek term, so probably around the time of Christ it would have been what, what when they would have used it. Actually, it would have been when they returned to Israel... So these would have been the people, when you go back in history, the people that did not come back with Ezra and Nehemiah. It's the people that stayed and settled around Israel. That's what I was getting to. Yeah. <clears throat> so there we have some 
historical context. So we're doing some exegesis here. We're understanding what's going on, who his audience is, what the goal is here, right? And that's going to help us understand the book of James better because if we understand that he's writing to Christian, Jewish Christians outside of Israel, so these are people who are used to being um, not the scum of the earth, but definitely being second-class citizens, right? These aren't people who would have been like Roman citizens. Um, These would have been people who would have been living in the slums and, you know, people who, who were poor, who were experiencing trials. <clears throat> That's why he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. So, moving beyond some exegetical work, so we did a little bit. We're not, like I said, we're not going to go into the full depth of this. Exegetical. Yeah, she just asked the exegetic would be the who, what, when, where, how. Yeah, it would be looking at the context, who he was writing it to, and looking at the meaning. So looking at the meaning would be something like um, a good example of looking at the meaning of the specific text. So Revelation was not just written to the modern church, right? Revelation was written to, well, the church that John wrote it to, the seven churches specifically, right? And so we need to look at why would John write those churches Revelation? Well, he must have had reasons, and we're not going to go into that tonight, but it's not just for us, it was also for them. Just like Romans was also for the Romans, primarily. And now we apply it to us. So we need to look at what Paul wrote, why he wrote it to the Romans specifically first. And in this case, why did James write to these 12 tribes in the diaspora? Why did he write to these Jewish Christians? That's what the goal of exegetical theology is, to understand what it looks like or what the meaning of this passage would have been to the original readers of James's letter. Then we dive into... The next theology, so we looked at some exegetical, and like I said, we're just doing it very simply. That's not all that's there. There's a lot more. But when we look at biblical theology, looking at the big picture of God's salvation, so we have a group of people who were a part of Israel, God's chosen people, and have been dispersed, have been displaced. So we have some interesting ramifications there in terms of God's big picture. God who promised them all these wonderful things to Abraham and Moses, and now they don't have those things because they're outside of their home, they're dispersed, they're poor, they're being sent through trials, you know, whether that's political trials or physical or economic. So you have these people who have been promised all these amazing things, but through Abraham, God's promised them so many wonderful things, and then they live this life of poverty and trial. So James is putting that in context for them and helping them to understand that these trials are producing something, are good for something. They're looking towards that end goal in the big story of Jesus Christ and of redemption. He's saying, look at the end goal over here. Don't just look at what's in front of you. Look over there. 
right? So he's framing it actually in this big picture, even just by how he writes to them, by his title, the 12 tribes. He's hearkening back to the promises made to Jacob. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. So he's saying, look to that goal of being perfect and complete where you are fully satisfied in God. Right? So that's framing it in this big story of God. Then we have systematic theology, all these different ideas. So from this, we can understand quite a few different ideas. We can understand how God works with his people. We obviously see that God sees trials as a way to produce faith. Okay, that's an interesting view of how the church works. We see that God views steadfastness as bringing us to perfection. Obviously, that doesn't mean perfect without sin. That means complete. So we can look at how God views mankind, how he views him as complete. What is a complete man? Well, we have a picture of that here. We have a little bit about who Jesus Christ is and how God is and how they interact with their people. God is not a God who is going to just give us a free ride, as it were. No, that's the wrong way strike that. Not a free ride. God's not a God who's going to make it easy for us necessarily. We are going to have trials in our life. And that produces firmness, steadfastness. Right? So that's what some systematic theology we can glean from that. And historical theology, I don't have any examples for us because I didn't go into full depth here, but we can look at how all these great Christian work Uh, workers, ministers, have viewed this passage, and we can come to conclusions based on that. And obviously, pastoral theology, we can glean a lot from here. When we have trials in our lives, that produces faith. That produces steadfastness, right? So that's a very simple working of the pastoral theology, but it's a very obvious one. In order to be complete Christians, we must have trials. So view the trials Appropriately. Yeah, which is the next thing. Count it all joy. So, as we can see, this is something we do anytime we study Scripture. It's an important practice to have. So, we need to, but before we can do that, as we just did there, you have to have. The library full of stuff in order to do that correctly. We got to have our library full of stuff. We have to have our library of systematic theology, historical theology, in order to properly understand these things. Now, I am not discounting the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in understanding Scripture. Not. He is the most important person. He has the most important role in our understanding of Scripture. That's why when Kevin said, I... You can understand this just as well as John Calvin because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, right? Exactly. I'm not discounting that at all. But it does bring all kinds of understanding, all kinds of life and application to us when our library is full. 
<clears throat> so we can recognize what goes on there. So we can recognize and understand the different cues that the Scripture is giving us. When we have an understanding of church history and biblical history, we can understand the timeline and how it flows and how we relate to it. And of course, we have to have an understanding of how to properly exegete Scripture, how to properly understand Scripture. Otherwise, a lot of those passages are going to get really confusing, especially when you get to some more difficult passages, like in Romans. Scripture is not difficult to understand when we apply the proper methodology and the proper rules to reading it and understanding it. And, of course, when we know where people are at their life, in their lives, their different views, worldviews, their different understanding, we can apply this to our modern times. <clears throat> so, the goal of our study here on Thursday nights is not necessarily to go verse by verse like we just did. That's not what my goal is. That is very important and crucial However, I want to give you guys the tools to do it yourself. So when you read a passage, you have the rabbit trails yourself to go down, right? You have the tools to be able to understand. You have the library full of stuff. So when you understand, you're like, oh, that's talking about this. That's, that's God as an omniscient God. That's God as, so this, this tells me, this, this talk about you know, trials producing faith, producing steadfastness. Well, that kind of talks about God being a wise God. And that talks about God being a loving God and also God being disciplinary a little bit. And so you can kind of go down these rabbit trails and have understanding about the Scripture based on what's in your library already. And that way, Scripture comes alive, becomes understandable and easy to read. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I'm not going to tell you what to think. You, you get to do that for yourself. We're going to look at how to learn this, how to study it, how to think, right? And how to know what truth is. Right, and how to know what truth is, because the thing is, is as people, we all know this, every human, every individual is different and goes through different things. There is not a formula for it. So if I give you a formula and somebody breaks the formula, for instance... Things like wars, things like tragic circumstances. If you have this formula, oh, God is a loving God, God this, God doesn't allow this, and then something happens that goes against that, well, then your whole world can shatter. Your whole faith, your whole self idea of who God is just breaks apart. So we have to have a proper understanding, an understanding of who God is, what God is, what he means, and to understand that none of this is surprising. But also he planned it. Also he, we have human will involved. There's a lot going on there. So that when things happen, because in reality we live in a fallen world. We live in a place where life can be horrifying at times. Where life is awful at times. People die. And the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And people are just sinful. It's not just... You know, the fact that 
we live in a terrible world, people can be just terrible because we have our own wills. And that's the reality. We cannot plan out people. <clears throat> so when we have our library full, then we can interact and react to all the different things that come up against us or come into our sphere of influence, as it were. When you have a friend who deals with the death of a child, when you have a friend who deals with you know, somebody getting their things stolen, or any number of things, all manner of things the world is going to throw at us can be understood through the lens of Scripture. This is how we do it, by understanding who God is, how he has worked with his, with his people, etc. So, with all that said, we've already kind of done a little bit of work in this We've talked about the background of the Bible itself. That's a little bit of bibliology. We've talked about the translations and the heresies. That's a little bit of historical theology and systematic theology. We've talked about worldviews. That's practical theology. We've talked about creeds, which is systematic theology and historical theology. Every one we've done is a step in this theology. So we can be equipped to do the work that Jesus Christ has called us to. <clears throat> and I'm not saying we're not going to study Scripture. Scripture is going to be the core of what we do. We're just going to jump around a lot. We're going to move around a lot. We're going to look. We're not going to go do a verse-by-verse study, but we'll do lots of studies of lots of different in places when we do theology proper. I find the two most important ones for modern Christians to understand that really frame the rest of them are theology proper and then soteriology, the study of salvation. When you get those two right, the others tend to fit in place really well. <clears throat> and those also tend to be the two that Satan attacks more than anything because obviously his whole goal is to undermine the person of God, the identity of God, and then undermine the idea that he has saved us and that we can be saved and what that actually looks like. Because if Satan can convince you that you have to work for your salvation, or if he can convince you that, oh, this isn't really how you get to salvation, this is how, that's where he subtly attacks, right? So that's where we're going to start with theology proper, the study of God himself, the character of God specifically, because that is what's going to kind of help us understand the rest of the things. So any questions or thoughts? Yes, sir. So when you, when you would go and start a study of scripture or something that you're looking mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Mike asked what, for, for talking, yeah, so Mike asked uh, specifically, like, if I want to look at historical context or something like that, what I would go to. So there's a few options for you, and I'm going to show you some of the ones that I really like. Um, so what... Most of the, this one right here, 
one's a little expensive, but I think they have it on Kindle somewhere. But like this is one I use a lot. So they have a couple different ones we can we you can use. These are yeah, they have them on Kindle too. Um, so you would use something. You could use something like a, a background commentary. <clears throat> it's like this set here. This Zondervan set is a New Testament one, which is a great set. Clinton Arnold was the editor. He was one of my professors at Biola. Um, and then this is the the Old Testament one, which is another fantastic set. And you can get programs that you can get these for a lot cheaper. You can also get kind of bigger, like this is one big chunky one that's about that thick as opposed to a multi-volume set. So there's lots of different ideas. This is what I like to use. I use these specifically for my church history background and my uh, biblical history background. This will give you all the different things like what it meant. So like one specific example that I learned from this commentary is in John when, he, when Jesus says, I am the living water, he says, he says, I am the living water, drink from me. There's the woman at the well he does it to with the example. But he also does it in the middle of Jerusalem. And as he's saying it, it was at the time when there was a tradition where they would literally take these giant jugs of water and pour it down the temple steps. And this giant water flow, waterfall of water would be coming down. And Jesus was standing there and said, I am this. Which is a pretty cool scene. Um, and you learn that from understanding this. And everyone at the time would have known that that was happening because, oh, that happened every year. Just like for us, what happens on 4th of July? Fireworks. So it would be like Jesus standing up and saying, I'm the light of the world as the fireworks were going off, right? So stuff like that is what helps us to understand. Um, and this is great for this. Uh, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. Like I said, it is on Kindle. And you can also buy the hardcover. For systematic theology, I like this book, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. This is the new one. Oh, it's on sale right now. That's great. And Wayne Grudem is absolutely fantastic. Can't recommend him enough. He also does another good book, which I'm just going to plug because it's really good. Uh, no, he does one on theology and politics. There it is. Politics according to the Bible, which is great. And he is, that is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and he also has Politics According to the Bible, which it was written before 2000, like it was written, I think, 10 years ago, but still really good, really fantastic. Um, so that's Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Um, this one is not, like I said, not the easiest read, but it also is really great because he's got it laid out really nicely. So you can, um, oh, I want to I look up who, like this one, chapter 29, the offices of Christ. How is Christ prophet, priest, and king? And he's got 10 pages on that. So you can just go read that if you want. It lays it out very nicely. Um, and in biblical theology, um, there's lots of different works that specifically deal with, like, God's big plan. So, like, this is one I read in college, The Mission of God, Unlocking God's 
grand narrative of mission specifically. So there's a lot of different ideas in books. Um, one thing you want to always look out for when you buy Christian books is you want to make sure you buy from a good publisher. There's really bad publishers that you have to be careful of. Most of them are self-published. Um, so IVP Books is a fantastic publisher. They have J.I. Packer. They've got all kinds of things there. That's not by them. That's just a sponsored ad, if you care about that. Uh, Baker Books is also good. There's a lot of good um, publishers, but like I said, there's also a lot of bad publishers. If you have any questions about that, I'd be happy to answer any questions about books. If you have a question about a book, you can just send me the Amazon link, and I'll tell you if it's good or bad. <laughs> not that I'm the the uh, final authority, but I can recognize publishers pretty well just based off of what the stuff I've read and who they've published and those types of things. Any other questions? All right. Yeah, and the other thing is get if you get a good study Bible, for instance, ESV Study Bible is fantastic with that. They have a lot of info in there. So is Spirit-Filled Life Bible. Uh, they're a little less on the historical information, but still good nonetheless. <clears throat> and you can get ESV Study Bible anywhere. You can get it on Kindle. So, any other questions? All right. Well, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your word so we can understand you better. Give us a wonderful week. Go, let us go in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.